This is Human Coined, a series that unpacks the mechanics of public finance, the complexities of democracy, and the societies they ultimately shape. I'm your host, Jeff Dubrow. Join me in a social dialogue that cracks open important issues that are too often ignored here at home and around the world. Samuel Bang, Executive Director of Parliamentary Network Africa, very warm welcome to the Human Coin Podcast. Thank you so very much for having me. Great pleasure. G- glad you're here. Let's start with getting to know a bit about your organization. Tell us about uh, PN Africa, as you're known, uh, your mandate and your reach across the continent. Right. So um, PN Africa, um, we like to describe ourselves as a convener and connector of civil society organizations that are working at engaging and monitoring their respective national parliaments across uh, the continent of Africa. Um, We work with the vision of uh, an Africa where all parliaments are open. And when we speak about open parliaments, we're talking about parliaments that are transparent, parliaments that are accountable to the citizens they serve, and parliaments that uh, encourages citizens' participation in the in the work of parliament. So we bring together civil society organizations across Africa to you know better work with their national parliaments, but also to hold national parliaments accountable, to monitor the work that parliaments are doing. Uh, and and for these civil society organizations, we provide capacity building for them, peer-to-peer learning, um, through what we call the Africa Parliamentary Monitoring Organizations Network. You know, so it's a a continent-wide network. Uh, And we also do this for journalists who are reporting from parliaments across the continent through an initiative we call the African Parliamentary Press Network. So we basically bring um, civil society uh, in the proper sense of the of the term civil society, both CSOs as organizations and then, you know, journalists as well as the people uh, to be closer to parliament, uh, understanding how parliament works, opportunities to engage, but also holding parliaments accountable. And um, that's, you know, the, the larger framework of what we do here at PN Africa. When you talk about parliamentary monitoring organizations, let's take a moment to define that, because as you know, I do a lot of work in capacity development with parliaments, but monitoring is a little bit of a different role and a different relationship. Can you talk a bit about the contrast? Yeah. So there's always been this confusion, um, even for us as civil society organizations working in parliament on whether the term parliamentary monitoring organization is the most effective term of art, you know, to use for the work that we do, because our work really is not just about monitoring parliament. It's not just about watching, you know, the the, the watchman, so to speak, but it's also very heavy on parliamentary engagement. But I think it's been a term of art which since the um, early 2000s when parliamentary development work, you know, um, uh, peaked in a way that was allowing for the, uh, the building of a community of practice, you know, of civil society organizations that works with parliament. And the term parliamentary monitoring organizations was used, and we've actually maintained that. So for us here in Africa, when we say parliamentary monitoring organizations, which is uh, abbreviated as PMOs, we intend it to mean organizations that engages regularly 
their national parliaments or sub-national parliaments, or even you know regional parliaments like the, the Pan-African Parliament, the ECOWAS Parliament, the East African Legislative Assembly. So regularly engaging these you know legislative assemblies, it's 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 an important one. Um, for what defines a parliamentary monitoring organization. So you can have a local chapter of Transparency International in a particular country that engages parliaments regularly on all anti-corruption draft legislation that you know, get laid before parliament, or a gender-based organization that is engaging parliament on gender legislation or gender policy that is taking place in parliament. These organizations are, are, are defined as part of the PMO community uh, and that we are trying to build. But there are also those organizations whose work involves, you know, monitoring parliament, monitoring attendance of members of parliament, tracking, you know, legislation, uh, ensuring that members of parliament are doing their work according to their mandate, ensuring that the institution of parliament are doing their work, producing scorecards and what have you. So all of these organizations, whether you are doing hardcore parliamentary monitoring, uh, whether you are being the one who is watching the watchman, so to speak, or you're engaging parliament on a regular basis fall within the category of PMOs, parliamentary monitoring organizations. So for the purpose of this podcast and whatever engagement that, you know, uh, uh, viewers and listeners uh, uh, relate to PN Africa on, PMO is defined in this context. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, my work has been more on the capacity development side, as I said, but I feel very strongly in the Canadian context, for example, you know, we, we're, we're a federation, we've got 14 legislatures, federal, provincial and territorial, that we very much need a par you know, parliamentary monitoring organizations. And what I see as the primary difference is it, as a capacity development person, I'm always positive in the way I phrase things. I'm always careful to especially when I'm traveling outside my own country, of course, but even in my own side of my own country, you know, trying to avoid, always trying to phrase things in a positive way um, and, and look at best practices. But sometimes I look at the legislature in the province that I live in, which is the province of New Brunswick. I look at the way the Public Accounts Committee performs here, for example, and, you know, they, they need a serious wake-up call in order to uh, to improve their operations. I sort of see the PMOs as being more willing to part with uh, flattery and courtesy and, and, and really call a spade a spade. If I'm right about that, how do you reconcile that with maintaining good relationships with all these organizations, with all these parliaments? You know, um, in our engagement with PMOs across the region, um, we have had PMOs who, you know, are, are your hardline, you know, um, um, who is watching. I mean, if Parliament is supposed to be the uh, legislative branch that oversees the executive branch, then the question always remains, who watches the watchman? You know, who is ensuring that this institution that is supposed to oversee the executive branch is doing exactly what the various constitutions in our countries is mandating it to do and who is ensuring that they would call them out if they are not doing the right things and and all of that and so yes you've got that but uh, many of the organizations we work with will also tell you that it's always important to also try and ensure the fine balance between you know holding the big stick over parliament so to speak and also ensuring that parliament will listen to you when you have propositions on reforms that needs to be taken up so uh, it's always a, a a thin line between uh, whether you are you are doing the, the 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 naming and shaming 
or you are you are essentially engaging the institution for reforms. You know, many organizations have learned the 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 the, the trick of navigating both paths. You know, so there are. I mean, you yes. go to Kenya and Mazalendo Trust would uh, um, annually you know release the scorecard on the performance of members of parliament and whenever they release it you'd have members of parliament you know upset and angry and what have you but mesalendo trust is also able to position itself in a way that it goes to the institution of parliament and work with them on legislative reforms and on other you know policy areas that parliament is supposed to take up it doesn't happen always like the, the Kenyan example I have just cited with our member organizations. And Mislendo Trust is one of our member organizations, by the way. You have countries where organizations that are doing hardcore parliamentary monitoring work are literally sidelined by parliaments because parliaments are not very happy with, you know, the, the, the criticisms that they receive, the, the scorecards that are put out. Members of parliament, you know, see the, the effect, the electoral effect on them when these things are put out. And so you have such organizations, you know, cut off, uh, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. You have countries where organizations will not even dare attempt doing hardcore PMO work because parliaments will come at you, you know. Uh, so there is always the need for that fine balance between, you know, uh, an institution that is so important that we need, really, to make sure that the various reforms that we are looking for, the various legislative things that we are looking for to take place, how do you still work with this institution and yet be able to call them out when, when they don't do things right? It's always a very interesting balance that we, we try to navigate. And it's part of the things that we build capacity on uh, uh, regularly as PMOs across, across Africa, even as we work together, sharing experiences from various countries and learning from each other. Yeah, so interesting. Um, and I think of the workshop that I had the pleasure of attending with you uh, in, in uh, Mombasa uh, awesome. in April or May of, of last year. Um, and, uh, you know, specifically uh, on the oversight of public debt, uh, regional workshop that was put on by the NDI and the host, partner, host democracy partnership. And I, I, I'm sure you were in the room when a very prominent member of parliament uh, openly attacked uh, civil society organizations for their work, uh, and I was I was really shocked. Um, I, I really shocked. So you know when I look at the you know this Canadian applicability, which is not really the purpose of this interview at all, but I guess it's something that I was thinking of, right? How to apply this in Canada? There will be hostility to to that constructive criticism, especially if we're ranking jurisdictions, which and we're going to talk about your index in a few moments, the the parliamentary and open parliamentary index, but there, there wouldn't be a hostility to civil society. Um, how much of an issue is that still in Africa when you're trying to bring parliamentary organizations or parliaments and civil society and media together? Well, it is important to note that in a world where civic space is constantly shrinking, uh, in a world where, you know, the uh, elected class, political elites, political class, constantly see civil society organizations as threats to them simply because, you know, uh, things are being exposed, simply because, you know, there are a group of people who are speaking up, simply because there are a group of people who are engaging their constituents, the people who would ensure that they are being voted back. 
uh, you would usually have that kind of pushback. Uh, the situation in Africa, just like anywhere else in the world, is a mixed situation. There are some countries where you have some very fantastic working relationship between civil society and, and parliaments, uh, uh, by the way. And, and of course, there are, there are places where the hostilities are great also because individual politicians, individual members of parliament seem to lose the essence of the importance of civil society work and how it connects very much uh, to the work of parliament. And so usually see these people or see us in civil society as enemies, you know, of the political class without recognizing that there is a lot that we bring to the table, you know. So it's a, it's a mixed situation, places where you have great experiences, great examples, great working relationship between civil society and parliament, and places where you have some very, very uh, terrible relationships and experiences between civil society and, and, and parliament. But, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a civic space thing, and, and we are grappling you know, uh, uh, with it. But I think we also, as civil society, have a responsibility to point out to these parliamentarians, to these political class, that there is a lot that we bring to the table. You know, many of the politicians have cited examples of how people work within the civil society space only to uh, build a certain reputation to come in, you know, uh, uh, unseat them, you know, in the next elections. But you know, right, the statistics right. really show that these are fewer people than the many that are actually doing the work in the various places to advance the course of, of, of humanity. And really, if Parliament would take, especially for Parliament, you know, I want to narrow this to Parliament because it's a space that I operate mainly yep. in. Uh, if Parliament would take a very critical view of civil society and the work that we do, they'll realize that we are a very important complementary component to the work that they do. They are interested in oversight. We are interested in oversight. Uh, many of the parliaments in Africa are under-resourced and so are unable to have the research capacity and research human resources that they need. Civil society brings that on board. Uh, they want to represent the people or the constituents that they represent. You have NGOs working down there at the grassroots in their various communities supporting the very people that they represent. So we must be seen as allies, really, uh, rather than foes in many of the instances. And let me take your statement and be much more radical um, in, in uh, considering I'm sitting here in my comfortable perch here in Canada. Uh, I would say that parliaments around the world, including my own parliament and, and legislatures, are, are failing to, to live up to their constitutional oversight responsibilities. You look at the Ghanaian parliament, for example, that has a, you know, from an oversight perspective that doesn't yet have a budget committee. I think they're just coming around to having a budget committee that will hopefully allow them to play a more vigorous role in the formulation and approval stages of the budget uh, where, where there is an opportunity for public participation. Uh, no state-owned enterprise committee, so very little oversight over state-owned enterprises, for example. Uh, and, and Ghana would be one of the countries you would look to as a leader in terms of effective public accounts committees or experienced public accounts committees. So I would actually say that parliaments are, are not able to play for, for political reasons, perhaps, for capacity reasons, uh, their constitutional role. And without civil society, there really is no real hope for improvement. Do you, do you agree with that statement? Well, I, I, I think that, yes, parliaments can do better. Um, I, I must admit that, um, um, you know, when we started, and we're gonna go into the conversation on the Open Parliament Index. When we started the Open Parliament yeah. Index, we started yeah, feel free it, to feel free to use that yeah. as a segue. Yeah, we we started it on the premise that you know when we talk about parliaments, 
um, how accountable they are, how um, participatory they ensure that the work that they do are, how engaging they are. Uh, we usually miss out on what the baseline is. So on what basis would you say that the Canadian you know, legislature is more open than the Ghanaian legislature because there's no universal benchmark to be able to, and that's why we started the OPI, to serve as a baseline, first of all, to see using globally accepted you know, benchmarks on what makes for um, an open parliament, a transparent parliament, uh, you know, an accountable parliament, uh, a parliament that is engaging citizens. How do we use those global benchmarks, benchmarks that are globally accepted by members of parliament themselves through the interparliamentary union and through other you know, parliamentary associations, benchmarks that are globally accepted by civil society in the case of the Declaration on Parliamentary Openness, benchmarks that are universally accepted by governments in the case of the uh, Open Government Partnership, OGP, to put them together to now have you know, a baseline to be able to say this is where you are really uh, measuring along these bench lines and this is where you must get to. And so anytime that you work towards getting to the point that you must get to, you are scored for you to see the measure the level of improvement that you are, you are making. I'm citing this example in direct reference to the question that you, you asked about whether parliaments are failing us, you know, and, 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 and usually you will be able to measure a failure when you have a yardstick, you know, with which you want to measure, you know, if 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 you note that the pass mark is 60, anyone who falls below 60 would then be deemed to have failed. But if the pass mark is uncertain, mm -hmm. you know, usually then you are you are contemplating whether the 80 guy has failed or is a 40 guy who actually you know failed and and, and what have you. And that's what we are trying to do uh, with the index. But we also live in a world where the the excesses overreach of the executive branch on the legislative branch makes it so difficult for the legislative branch to operate as co-equal branch of, of government. You know, so, you know, the executive is determining how much the, the legislature would even spend in many of the countries. You know, executive branch uh, 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 fails the legislature with members uh, because they are both, you know, they are practicing some form of a hybrid system where the legislatures uh, Tests are also, you know, members of the executive branch. The executive branch wields a lot of power and resources, and so makes the legislature more like uh, subservient, really, to the executive branch instead of being the mm -hmm. the the, the co-equal uh, branch of government. And and this really affects the way and manner in which parliaments operate. So the the challenges that militate against parliaments around the world are many. And uh, until we address those, you know, many, many challenges, we'll have some of these situations where parliaments are not seen to be doing their work very well. But, you know, to end that up, you know, parliaments themselves must take up the responsibility in recognizing that, look, your destinies are in your hands as parliaments. You must be able to, you know, assert yourself as, as an important arm of government for people to take you seriously. Let's talk a bit about the survey. So, so what were your sort of key findings? The, the Open Parliament Index, uh, which covered 13 countries in, in West Africa, what 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 were your sort of key findings? Uh, what were the issues that concerned you the most? Okay, so on the onset, uh, what did we set ourselves to do? We set ourselves to have an index that is able to measure the level of transparency, accountability and citizens' participation 
in, in the works of parliament. And we set ourselves to use benchmarks that will be acceptable by all parliaments, three benchmarks. One is a, a global civil society benchmark known as the Declaration on Parliamentary Openness, which defines you know, 44 uh, principles that makes for an open you know, parliament. The second is the uh, 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 benchmark on a democratic parliament, which has been put in place by the Interparliamentary Union, the IPU. And the IPU, by the way, is the uh, global union of all parliaments. So it's parliaments themselves who have set for themselves benchmarks on what makes for a good democratic parliament. And also the uh, open parliaments components of the uh, Open Governance Partnership, OGP. All these put together into uh, measurable issues that we can run across the various parliaments. We set for ourselves an index that would uh, measure all African parliaments along these lines equally and release at the same time. So the, the, the Maiden Open Parliament Index, which was launched in 2021, 2022, sorry, I beg your pardon, 2022, uh, was only um, a pilot. So it focused only on West Africa. And the next index, by the way, is coming up later this year, 2024, which is now going to take into account West Africa, East Africa, and possibly oh, Southern Africa, oh, you know, oh, so relatively exciting. bigger. Very exciting. And so that's what we set for ourselves to, 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 to do. Now, uh, in this West African specific index, which measured 13 out of the 15 West African countries, and we didn't measure the other two because they were undergoing military rule at the time and parliaments were not functional in the case of Mali and right. guinea Conakry. Right. We, we discovered a few very interesting things. The first thing is that of the benchmarks that were used and the measurements that were used, the most open parliament in West Africa, which is Ghana, you know, scored a pulsating 63%. You know, so your highest ranking, most open, most transparent, accountable, and citizens participating parliament in West Africa, you know, scored 63 in many uh, uh, academic institutions that will not pass for for a first class, you know. Uh, yeah, and and you it's have absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know. But that's what you know. Ghana led with. Uh, mm -hmm. You have uh, aside the first three uh, uh, parliaments on the list, every other parliament scored below fifty percent, you know, mm -hmm. on, on on the benchmarks. So it shows how, you know, uh, extremely low the baseline. And this was, we we're just trying to gather the baseline so that we can also measure some level of improvement. We also realized that whereas there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of positives in the side of parliamentary transparency. You know, parliaments are doing a lot of interesting things that is making parliaments closer to the people. So in many of the countries, access to information laws have been passed. And so you can you can you can request for information in many of the countries. Parliaments are streaming live on Facebook. And so, you know, you can you can um, uh, you don't necessarily have to be physically present. Uh, 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 parliaments are using um, Internet and technology to get closer to the people. In many of the parliaments, they have radio stations that are attached to parliament who are broadcasting the proceedings of parliament. In many of the parliaments, they are having, you know, these kinds of things, uh, uh, parliamentary agenda, the minutes of parliamentary sittings, the, the official report or hands 
from parliament are available online. You can download them and all of that. Those are great stuff, you know, and we noticed that parliament scored higher in these areas of transparency, making parliamentary information available, accessible, you know, and all of that. The only low points to it is that in many of these instances, the information, although available, are not reusable, you know, so they are not in open formats that can make you you know, analyze the information easily, that can make you, you know, assess it easily. In many of the instances also, Parliament sees uh, making information accessible as purely internet-based, you know, and on a continent where internet penetration can be a bit of a challenge for people who are living in rural areas, then you have a situation which we describe here at PN Africa as uh, uh, the opposite of democratization of parliamentary information. You know, whereas parliament belongs to everybody, uh, parliamentary information is not democratized. You know, those who are living in the bigger cities have access. Uh, those who are living in the smaller and rural communities don't have access to parliamentary information. So that was one of the discoveries that we made in the area of transparency. In the area of citizens' participation, we realized that there are, it's a mixed feeling. Some countries are engaging very well with civil society on, on matters relating to parliaments, mainly the anglophone you know, countries, uh, the Francophone countries, you know, are, not, are now peaking. Uh, civil society don't have as, as big an engagement with Parliament as in their Anglophone, you know, counterparts as we discovered in the in the index. Um, there were there, there were instances where some in some Parliaments there are there are close to no engagement between Parliament and civil society at all. You know, however, these Parliaments are quick to want to engage with international institutions. Uh, 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 on the work that they do, uh, when I talk about international institutions, things that brings up travel opportunities. So whereas they are not engaging with the organizations within their own countries, they are quick to attend the Commonwealth Parliamentarian Associations conferences of our times, and they are quick to attend the invitations of, of the EU Parliament and, and what have you. You know, so those are things that we needed to flag. Uh, but the lowest points in the entire index, which had even the top parliament, that is Ghana, scoring very low on, is on the area of accountability, parliamentary accountability to the citizens. In accountability, in parliamentary accountability, we are talking about how elected officials or representatives, parliamentarians, are accounting back to the people that have given them the mandate because they are not uh, representing themselves. They are representing a group of people. You know, and so you find in many instances where there are no systems to get parliamentarians reporting back to their constituents on what they are doing, what parliament has done, how that is inuring to their benefits as local community people and what have you. There is also the bit about no accountability on resources that are allocated to these members of parliament uh, to, to run their, their, their parliamentary offices or their parliamentary roles, you know, no, no accountability. Uh, people are hiring parliamentary staffers without recourse to, you know, uh, uh, best practices. You know, uh, people are bringing in their relatives, people are bringing in their party apparatchiks uh, uh, to fill in some of these roles and what have you. Uh, no real accountability. But also the institutions of parliaments themselves, you know, for an institution that is actually overseeing the executive branch and how much, it com how much comes in and how much it spends, we discovered that not a single parliament in West Africa actually publishes their own parliamentary budgets, their own parliamentary expenditure, 
their own parliamentary procurements in an open manner in a way that is globally acceptable, not a single one of them. And I don't think that this is something that we would only discover in West Africa. In fact, it is our contention that if we expand this to East and, 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 and Southern Africa and even North Africa and Central Africa, and if we expand this beyond Africa, we will find many, many parliaments on various continents who are saying we are overseeing the executive and how are you spending? Come to PAC, Public Accounts Committee, and account for what you have, you have spent as the executive branch. Yet, the institutions of parliament are very opaque with their own finances. You know, so uh, that was a very interesting point that was noted you know, uh, uh, by us. Uh, in fact, it was only the parliament of Capo Verde that actually has some semblances of publishing some information relating to the uh, parliamentary budget and parliamentary expenditure. Aside Cabo Verde, every other parliament will make the argument that, well, but our budget is part of the national budget anyways. But you see, the best practice is that we don't want to see the national budget and be confused with the numbers. We want to see what the legislative branch has as its budget, how the legislative branch went ahead to expand those, you know, what are some of the infractions that were discovered? How are we dealing with those infractions? Because you need to build that moral right as the organization that is overseeing the executive branch to be able to hold the executive branch to account. You know, so those were some of the discoveries we made in the OPI, which were quite staggering uh, and interesting for us as, as assessors of the, of, the, of, the, of the index. Well, on your very last point, I can't think of a single watchdog that likes to be watched, right? <laughs> and I guess that I, you know, I, well, I, I told you off camera that I, you know, that one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because of how much I learn from the guests. And this is another example, Sammy. I, I was just doing a contract for a client uh, related to the setting up of a parliamentary service commission in an Asian parliament. And we actually introduced, we actually interviewed the secretary to the parliamentary services board in Ghana as part of that. Uh, as part of that research project. Uh, but it never occurred to me, in all the, the questions that we asked, it never occurred to me to ask. You know, it was all focused on a, autonomy from the executive. You know, how, you know do you, do you, are you able to set up your own budget independently, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it never occurred to me to, to think about the perspective that you just raised, which is how, how accountable is Parliament to the public for the funds that it spends? That's a, a very, very interesting, yeah. very, very relevant point. Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, I was just making the point that the research pointed to the fact that this is pervasive. It's with all of the 13 parliaments that we reviewed in the index. And I dare say that if we expand this to 50 parliaments, we may discover similar threats across the board. Yeah, I mean, you have the potential, and you're already doing this, but really to create an agenda for action for the whole continent in terms of some of the issues that you find. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's easy to go into one parliament and say you need to do this, but to be able to say that this is lacking across the continent, um, you know, creates some real potential for an entry point for, for significant change. Um, what, what is it that you think is the reason that parliamentarians and parliaments, because you said you talked earlier about for the parliamentary side, parliamentary accountability to constituents, reporting back to constituents, which I mean is is again I'll, I'll you know I, you know that I've worked around the world, but I also am very 
you know, active in, in watching my own politics in my own country. And one of the things we, I could say about Canadian politicians, uh, and I could criticize them until the cows come home, but one of the things I can say is they do not take that for granted. They do not take reporting back to their constituents. They do not take that openness for granted because they know that, you know, we are a uh, first-past-the-post single-member district system across the country, with the exception of two northern legislatures. You, ha in order to be elected, you've got to, you've got to be able to, um, to to demonstrate that you are listening to your constituents and that you're, you're reporting back to them. Why is that something that has not taken hold in in the African context? Well, a couple of reasons can be can be cited for this. Um, in some countries, I would argue that it's because of the um, uh, legislative systems that the country practices, right? I mean, the parliamentary system that a country practices, i.e. the kinds of um, uh, elections that, that, I mean, how parliamentarians are selected, let me put it that way. You know, so mm -hmm. when you have an instance where uh, members of parliament, I mean, not all countries practice the first past the post, you know, system in, in the legislators. You know, some have the proportional representation uh, um, arrangement where, you know, um, depending on how, how, what percentage a particular political party wins at the polls, they, they nominate individuals, sometimes pre-selected names into parliament based on those percentages. And so you have instances where people hold their loyalties to their political parties rather than to the constituents, for which reason they would rather do whatever the political party says just to maintain the tickets rather than to serve, you know, uh, the people down there. And so, you know, they really would, would discard accountability. So that's one of the instances for those who practice, especially the proportional representation system. And I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. This is a very low-tech podcast, but it, but so I don't have the ability to flash words across the screen. But you are talking about my favorite topic, my favorite. There is no topic that I love more than talking about electoral systems and specifically the lack of accountability in the in the proportional representation system. I apologize for the interruption. I just had to tell you that I was just no, bursting with enthusiasm. You know, <laughs> many people have their own. Um, uh, there are many interesting schools of thoughts about these, you know, yeah. uh, systems, electoral systems, and and the pros and cons and what have you. Um, as as a parliamentary watcher and somebody working within the parliamentary development space, I have my very strong views, you know, about these systems and and how they either promote, you know, the work of members of parliament um, as people who are representing their constituents, or rather. Uh, uh, take away from the promotion of same, but that's a conversation for perhaps another podcast uh, 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 on a different day. But 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 even for those who are doing you know first past the post direct uh, uh, elections and what have you, we are also seeing instances where the the drivers of what makes people vote their members of parliament back to power has seemed to be shifting from you know how accountable the member of parliament is how many times the member of parliament is coming around to tell us what's happening to what kind of uh, developmental projects the member of parliament is embarking on and how the member of parliament's role benefiting me personally when we had a funeral in the in the in the community did he attend 
when the church invited him for the annual harvest to come make a donation, did he come? When the Muslims in the community were celebrating the Eid, did he make any significant uh, donation of a big fat cow uh, for us to mark the Eid with? And those become the things that people seem to measure the Member of Parliament with. For which reason, the Member of Parliament feels that to the extent that I do these things, I really don't need to come to you to tell you that, you know, Parliament is passing a, a, a bill on, on, on affirmative action and this is what it's going to do to you, uh, or, or Parliament is, is, is passing a policy uh, that would uh, affect your right to information or your pensions and what have you. And so those are some of the things that we are grappling with here, which actually has a, has a major effect on, on parliamentarians being accountable to, 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 to the citizens that they actually represent. That's amazing. Um, so in a way, the ends justify the means, right? The ends justify the means. The, the means, which is the way that parliament operates and parliamentarians operate, is, is just part and parcel. It's not, it's, it becomes irrelevant because what's really important is... It's about the next elections for many other parliamentarians. So whatever will win the person the seats in the next elections, you know, and this has accounted also for the cost of politics in our part of the world and in many parts of the world because, right. you know, uh, 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 legislation around political campaign financing uh, is lacking in many of these, these places and it becomes so expensive to run for 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 office you know in many of these places to the extent that you know some research in in some of these countries are showing that um, it costs more to run for a seat in parliament in some countries than the combined salaries of these parliamentarians for the entire period that they serve as parliamentarians and these are quite staggering you know revelations and and I you know I just love how we're just working horizontally on this conversation, bringing in more and more elements that are interconnected. Another one of those is the constituent development funds, because that yeah. seems to me I I remember you know when I my first trip to Africa and I point to you because you're Ghanaian if I'm not mistaken. Right. My first trip right. to Africa was 2007 and it was to Ghana, uh, and I you know been blessed to be back many times since then. But I remember as I got to know the continent a little bit better. I'll say a little bit because you know, I, I'm Canadian. I, I'll never know it as well as somebody who, who is from Africa, of course. But I was always surprised by how these constituent development funds, it seemed to me to, at, in 2007 to be an anomaly in terms of, you know, the, the ability for parliamentarians to be involved in making decisions regarding spending. It's getting more and more clear to me that you look at Kenya, which is actually, I believe, I think that was that, that was happening at the time where we were in Mabasa, they're, they're looking at a constitutional amendment to in, ensure that parliamentarians continue to be involved in the constituent development funds. Isn't that something that really perpetuates this whole culture that you're talking about of what can, you know, of making sure that parliamentarians have access to the cash to be able to give to their, their, their constituents, uh, which de-emphasizes the need for that accountability? Well, it does. It does perpetuate the problem. But, you know, uh, many parliamentarians will argue that it's actually a solution to a, a problem that we've not found a solution to. So this is how it started. Um, you know, for many of these countries, the only 
elected officials they know are the presidents they have elected and the parliamentarian they have elected. And for them, you are the drivers of development. For the president who is sitting somewhere in the capital city, they hardly get to see him or her. Uh, he, he or she would come around when it's getting to elections. But for you, the parliamentarian, you are their folk. They elected you. And so they think that every developmental matter must be at your doorstep. Many of the countries have not, and, and Ghana is an example, have not gotten to the stage where they elect their um, uh, local government, local government officials, you know, um, uh, and so local government officials are not seen as directly responsible or directly accountable to the people because the people don't have a means to to sack you with the thumb, the power of the thumb, if you are underperforming, yeah. and so they, they put all of those burden on the on the parliamentarians. Some will, however, argue that there are countries like Kenya, there are countries like um, um, Sierra Leone and, and the likes, where the, you know uh, they elect. You know, local government officials, South Africa and, and, and co. But even there also, we are finding these challenges. And it's happening because many of us citizens feel that whereas we have elected you and you are representing us, you must bring some form of development. The members of parliament in their campaigning or the aspiring members of parliament in their campaigning go about promising heaven and earth and rather do not stay clear of giving their people the indication that the work they are going to do is to represent them to lobby for things to be brought to their constituencies to make sure that legislation that are passed you know have their interest at heart to oversee the executive branch these core functions of members of parliament aspiring parliamentarians go promising more and they are telling you that we are going to bring schools and we're going to build roads and we're going to construct you know uh, hospitals when they know that it does not remain within their mandate to do now, when they get elected, they now start to backtrack and say, this is not my duty. Uh, I, I mean, I am unable to do that. How much money do I have to do that? What resources do I have? Right. And so the people now vote them out and say, you promised us something else and you're doing something else. And of course, there is a new candidate uh, who is also promising the same thing. And so the cycle goes on and on and on. So now members mm -hmm. of parliament are making the argument that, okay, yes, we've created this problem on ourselves. We've gone to promise things that are not supposed to be our responsibility. And now it has become part of the things that people hold us accountable to. So please provide us some resources so that we can be seen to be in the countries. Of course, in various countries, it is administered differently. In some countries, you have a constituency development fund administered to the member of parliament. There are specific kinds of projects that you can do with it. Uh, in the case of Ghana, for example, you have what is called the district assemblies common fund, where you have the MP's share or the members of member of parliament's share of the district assemblies common fund. Uh, that money is not administered at all by the member of parliament. The member of parliament only indicates the kinds of or recommends the kinds of projects that must be done with is the local government within the area that actually signs on the on the account and allocates the money and it's a bit murky you know people are looking for ways to be able to so we've created a problem for ourselves through this development uh, focused campaigning that we have sold to the constituents and then when it comes to bite we're asking for resources to be able to you know uh, 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 feed this uh, monster that we have created in a way that is also blurring the lines between the actual role of the parliamentarian and the institution yeah. of parliament versus the new role that is kind of being created now.
Wow. Um, there's one other issue I want to raise with you before we wrap up, uh, which is about Ghana itself. Uh, I, you know, I've always had a strong affection for Ghana, particularly because of the the fact that I, you know, it was the first African country that I that I worked in. The, the fact that it's a long, you know, long-standing democracy. Uh, uh, many, many reasons, and some of the friends I've made there. Um, you know, Ghana's in debt distress, and I ask you this as a Ghanaian and, and a, as a parliamentary and civil society expert. Ghana's in debt distress. Um, you know, you mentioned that they. Uh, well, let me start again. That is, Ghana's in debt distress. Um, you know, when I look at some of the indicators for Parliament's involvement and oversight in Ghana, uh, you know, there there are areas where I see, for example, the lack of civic participation in in Parliament, uh, the lack of opportunity for 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 citizen input into the into the formulation and approval stages of the budget, for example. Um, I'm doing some work and I, I tend to ramble a little bit sometimes when I've got multiple thoughts going on in my head, but I'm doing some work right now, which I'd like to share with you when it's ready on, on the role of uh, civil society in monitoring IMF agreements. You know, God has, of course, entered into an agreement. I think it's 17th agreement, if I'm not mistaken, or 13th agreement. I can't remember the number. I, I might be confusing you with Sri Lankan. Sri Lankan number, but they're close in terms of the number of times that, that the country has entered into an IMF agreement since uh, since independence. But my concern is the lack of, you know, on, on one hand, I see strong civic participation in Ghana. You know, I'm, I'm always shocked to hear that, for example, there are local organizations that are working with audit committees at the district level to ensure that audit recommendations are being implemented. I mean, you don't really see that anywhere else in the world as far as I know. That's very, very unique. But at the same time, I'm concerned that the civic participation in Parliament is not strong enough to be able to actually ensure that Parliament is doing a good job in terms of overseeing public debt, for example, or, 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 or meeting the targets of the IMF agreement. What are your thoughts on that? Sorry for the long question. That's okay. And, and yes, you're you're right that this is the 17th IMF uh, bailout, you know, since 17. independence. Uh, yeah. As Ghana yeah. is concerned, um, um, for um, a country that is um, now that is almost hitting its 70th. Uh, anniversary of independence to have gone to the IMF 17 times gives you an indication of how often we do go. Um, you know, an average of about four years, uh, we we end up with the with with the IMF and what have you. The thing with Parliament's role in public debt management and and, and all of these issues, public debts, is that. I think that successive parliaments have not really seen themselves very as very integral in the whole public death, you know, uh, 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 space. And parliaments have not come to terms with how critical their roles are in this whole conversation and usually left it to the executive branch to mismanage and mismanage and mismanage until you know it comes down to the wire and then members of parliament start to scream 
because their constituents are suffering and their constituents are threatening them uh, to lose in the next election and so for electoral purposes and for various parties you know they go about to cry for the necessary reforms but like you rightly starts from the budget formulation you know of course i believe that our constitution you know provides some very very terrible situation on parliament's role in the whole budget formulation processes in that there is a limit to what parliaments can really really do when it comes to you know approving the national budget you know on on, on an annual basis and so uh, we run a system where you know the ceilings you know cannot be touched you can only just do some reallocations here and there from one sector or recommend for reallocations here and there from one sector to the other when the whole issue have got into parliament and parliament is almost never involved in the processes leading up to the budget being presented before parliament you know it is now that parliament is looking at you know passing the budget bill uh, which will now increase its role in the whole process and also seek to establish the parliamentary budget office and all of that but we've had these conversations we've had organizations advocate for this for many many years hopefully it it it, it sees the light of day hopefully um, very very soon and so parliament had had defaulted or had not exerted its authority very well in that area of course i i attribute many of that uh, uh, to 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 the to the constitutional you know restrictions but when the budget also gets to parliament usually have a situation where the budget is presented sometime in November. You know, Parliament's got six weeks, eight weeks maximum to, 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 to look at this. And by the time it and comes in lot, November, that's the first... like Malawi where it's two weeks. Well, 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 yes, yes, but it's still, it's still terrible. And, and of course, I'm, I'm saying this, you, you know... You a lot in, in quotation. In, yeah. <laughs> But, but you see, it also goes to the, the kind of uh, terrible situation that our parliaments across the, the continent and in many other countries outside of the continent are put in, you know, that you only see the budget for the very first time two to six weeks before it must be passed and you expect it to go through the entire process and pass it anyways. And so, you know, what's going to happen is a firefighting approach really to the entire, entire process and, and that limits the level of citizens' participation, because you ask this question anchored on the premise of civic participation. So parliaments will argue that we've got just two weeks to be able to do this. If we say we are going to have consultations with civil society and with academia and with all other stakeholders, it's going to take all of the time. We don't have time, right? And so then our abilities to engage in the process is limited because parliament is complaining about time and the kind of work that they need to do according to their parliamentary practices and procedures. Now, when this is over, and it's been approved and spending takes place. Parliaments are usually not exerting their oversight responsibility in a way that allows for checks and balances, but are often waiting for the final reports to appear before the public accounts committee for vetting. But during the period of implementation, who is monitoring the level, the volumes of loan proposals that are coming to parliament for approval? and checking whether it is going beyond the ceiling or remaining within the threshold. Who is ensuring that state-owned enterprises are not overspending in a way that cripples the financial situation of the country? Who is ensuring that you know, the Office of Government Machinery, the presidency and his ministers are not completely bloated in a way that is actually putting too much pressure on the public finances of the country? 
we watch on, allow these to go on as parliament until now the year ends. Auditor General does the audit. And by the way, until recently, uh, Auditor General's reports for uh, uh, four years, three years will now be discussed. You know, so we had a huge backlog in Ghana where, you know, uh, in 20, it, let's, let's cite an example. So, for example, in 2024, you'll still have Parliament discussing the Auditor General's reports of 2020 or of 2021, by which time the infractions have happened, new years have come up, people have retired, people, people have died, you know, and, and, and accountability becomes a problem. All of these, together with many more reasons, are the reasons we are where we are. And for me, I think one of the big recommendations, especially for the Parliament of Ghana, because you cited this as a Ghana example, is how to get the institution of Parliament and members of Parliament to understand their role in public debt management. You know, know that Parliament truly has a role to play. You know, and how to get us even as civil society. But for the Mombasa meeting, there were so many things, even as a parliamentary development person that I am, that I really, really did not have a clue about on what Parliament's real role could be in this whole, you know, situation. And I think members of Parliament also do not understand it that much. And that could be one of the that that could be one of the solutions really going forward to getting Parliament of Ghana to play a bigger role in the whole debt management processes. Okay, so you just you are the first person I know who has ever answered a question by describing the role of the Ghanaian parliament, or any parliament for that matter, in every stage of the budget process. Your response covered formulation, approval, implementation, and audit oversight stage. That was, that was epic. Wow. If I, I asked someone a question like that, I, I strongly doubt that they would provide an answer that was as comprehensive as that if I had deliberately posed that question. That was very impressive. Go ahead. Sorry. Go I was, I was saying that I sat at your feet to learn one or two things about public financial management, and so I learned the entire Well, we're learning from each other, trust me. Um, I often have a very strong sense of regret in these interviews that we can't continue and ask more questions, but uh, this is, I think, a good place for us to stop for this discussion, bearing in mind that I think we're going to have to do this again sometime in the next, maybe within this calendar year. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Samuel Bank, Executive Director of Parliamentary Network Africa. Absolutely epic, incredible discussion. So enlightening and inspiring. Happy to have, to have been on this podcast, and I look forward to, 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 to more and more of these. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Human Coined is an integral part of Nexus PFM Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also find us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions about the work we do, you can contact us at info at nexuspfm.com.